Welcome to Cleary Gottlieb's Antitrust Review, a podcast focused on antitrust enforcement, policy, and practice. In an increasingly complex and noisy world, we strive to provide insight, clarity, wisdom, and light. My name is Nick Levy, and I'll be your host today. My guest today is one of the leading scholars in our field. A graduate of the universities of Helsinki and Harvard Law School, she practiced competition law at Cleary Gottlieb in Brussels for five years before leaving for the world of academia, first to the University of Chicago and then to Columbia Law School. Since 2014, she's been the Henry L. Moses Distinguished Professor of Law and International Organization. She also finds time to be a director of the European Legal Studies Center at Columbia, a senior scholar at Columbia Business School, and a non-resident scholar at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. She's a prolific writer. She's co-led the Comparative Competition Law Project that's built a comprehensive global data set of antitrust laws and enforcement across time and jurisdictions. And she's been an advisor and expert assistant in the European Parliament and the Parliament of Finland. I'm delighted to welcome Professor Anu Bradford. Anu, I'd like to start with your 2020 book, The Brussels Effect, which is a really fascinating overview of the way in which the EU has become a global regulatory superpower that you maintain has in many areas shaped the world in its image. Among other things, you argued for a more robust antitrust enforcement in the US, which you believed would bring the US into line with the EU. Now, since then, and it's only two years, we've seen a very significant change in the rhetoric and enforcement policy of the US agencies, with Department of Justice Assistant Attorney General Jonathan Cantor saying, I'm here to declare that the era of lax enforcement is over and the new era of vigorous and effective enforcement has begun. And FTC Chair Lena Khan calling for a sweeping reassessment of competition law. Anu, what's your reaction and did you see this coming? So first of all, thank you so much for having me, Nick. And uh, it's really um, a joy to have this conversation with you. So whether I saw this coming, I would say yes. If you just think about how concentrated the digital economy today is and just how powerful the leading U.S. tech companies have become, it was only the matter of time when the United States also needed to reassess its hands-on laissez-faire approach towards regulating this industry and really assert the government powers uh, much more profoundly. So in the Brussels effect, I portray this picture of the European Union leading this charge uh, against the tech companies and many other industries as well, while the U.S. has mainly watched from the sidelines uh, when the EU regulates the American companies. So the U.S. government has really had the choice of outsourcing all this regulation to the EU or try to get on the game itself. And these examples that you mentioned, the nominations of pro-enforcement people to the top positions in the U.S. agencies, finally uh, deploying the American antitrust laws against the tech companies, this indicates that the United States is now trying to abandon this lax enforcement and join the EU in in the quest to regulate the industry. Thanks, Anu. Stepping just away from regulation and looking at enforcement policy generally and uh, the way in which the U.S. agencies have been um, pursuing a more interventionist approach to mergers, was that anticipated by you? Did you see that coming as well? 
Um, I would say yes, because one of the big issues really has been the degree of concentration. So we've been focusing on the market structure and, and what kind of structure has emerged from this lesser fair policy. So I think it was um, in, in that sense uh, predictable or it made sense to see that merger control would be one of the many tools where the U.S. agencies can ex ante try to influence those market structures. So it was it was one of those toolkits um, that I think was inevitably part of the solution if the U.S. tried to pursue a more assertive role. Thanks, Anu. Another theme of your book was your critical review of the narrative that the EU is protectionist. And since the book came out, we've seen new EU rules on foreign subsidies and the introduction of FDI regimes across Europe that many view as being designed, at least in part, to protect European companies from foreign takeovers. And recently, Joseph Borrell, the EU's High Representative for Foreign Affairs and Security Policy, at a speech at the College of Europe in Bruges, likened the EU to a garden, his words, surrounded by a jungle that needed, he said, taking care of to avoid being invaded. So what's your view? Do you think the EU has become or is becoming more protectionist? So Nick, I'm afraid that the EU might be part of this global trend towards greater focus on industrial policy and, and protectionism. But let me first defend for a moment this view that up until very recently, I don't think that, for instance, the EU's antitrust record uh, against the U.S. tech companies is a manifestation of protectionism. So this is a very easy and appealing narrative to advance in the U.S. when you look at who the targets of the EU's antitrust enforcement actions have been. So, yes, the U.S. companies have been a, a major target of those investigations. But if you look at, there is no European search engine that the Commission is trying to protect when going against to, uh, Google. There is no big um, competitor to Facebook in the social media space when the EU is uh, challenging the practices of Facebook. And if you think about in many of these investigations, there are American companies on both sides of the disputes. So who was the company that initially uh, asked the Commission to go after Google? It was Microsoft and other American tech giants. So in many ways, I think it's very simplistic to, to simply assume uh, that the EU would be uh, driven by this envy uh, um, uh, against the more, uh, more powerful and successful uh, US uh, tech industry. So, but I am conscious that the tone of the conversation is changing. So especially uh, in the shadow of the US-China tech war, uh, in the uh, aftermath of COVID, where the global supply chains really unraveled, um, there is now a much greater sense of insecurity. And this idea that we cannot rely on uh, the logic, the, the formal logic of globalization, but we really need to be more self-sufficient. So the idea we talk about strategic autonomy or technological sovereignty or digital sovereignty, and if you look at China has always been protectionist. The US is turning increasingly protectionist. And the EU's view is that we cannot be naive in defending openness in an increasingly closed world. Instead, we need to build our own capabilities. We need to harness more of an industrial policy to make sure that those technologies are built uh, in Europe. And, and I don't have a problem with the idea that the EU would be eager to build greater technological capabilities. 
But these citations of High Representative Borrell indicate another narrative, more of a fortress Europe, the idea that Europe does become more closed. And, and I am much more concerned of this idea that, that Europe would see protectionism as a pathway towards greater technological sovereignty. Um, but I think at the same time, and I'm sorry, I'm a little uh, long-winded with this answer, but I think it's one of the most critical questions that we are facing, that we need to learn, for instance, from our energy dependence on Russia, that we cannot build the same kind of dependencies on China when it comes to semiconductors. But what is this kind of optimal amount of decoupling, the optimal amount of technological sovereignty that still preserves the benefits of economic openness? I think that's one of the hardest questions facing our policymakers. That's a fascinating answer, Anu. I certainly agree with your view that the European Commission has insulated competition policy enforcement from political interference. But isn't that in part because of the expanded toolkit designed to protect the European model? Um, I think it is, Nick, and I, and I do agree. And I would even say that there was clearly a gap when it came to foreign subsidies. The WTO regime did not address that. The EU state aid regime left those, subs, uh, those foreign subsidies uh, without the adequate controls. We do need to reassess the FDI uh, coming into the EU also on national security grounds. So there is certainly an expansive toolkit. But where I worry, Nick, is that if we're trying to convert our traditional competition policy into a tool for industrial policy. So, for instance, the conversation that was emerging in the aftermath of the uh, Alston Siemens merger and the, the calls for the Commission to be more lenient in building European national champions so that Europe can better compete against, um, for instance, Chinese and American rivals. And this idea, you may recall the manifesto by French and German on industrial policy driven merger control. I am quite cautious um, and, and when looking at those initiatives and worried that ultimately they don't serve at the welfare of Europe. And if I tie it to, to my work on the Brussels effect, I think we should keep in mind that the Brussels effect is an effective tool to export good and bad regulations alike. And if we start engaging in protectionist merger policy, for instance, what would stop Brazil then from following that same template when you have European companies trying to acquire a Brazilian company on their market, if we are showing the way in, in building European national champions. Thanks, Anu. Let me turn to a slightly different uh, topic provoked by uh, the Brussels effect. Um, in that book, you wrote that the UK has typically been, and I quote, the voice for moderation in the EU's regulatory pursuits, calling for restraint and the need to balance regulation with considerations of competitiveness. And you were concerned at the time that following Brexit, this important pro-market voice will be gone, shrinking the coalition of states to push through an increasingly ambitious European regulatory agenda. It's still early days, but have your fears been realized? And do you think the EU has been strengthened or weakened by Brexit? So definitely the EU has been weakened by Brexit and the UK has been weakened by Brexit. So there was a false promise of regulatory sovereignty awaiting the UK on the other side of Brexit. And this economic growth that was supposed to follow from those market-driven choices and the freedom that the UK would gain 
those were false promise and it was politically reckless to deliver that kind of promise. And I think if you if we all can conclude looking at the developments in the in the UK over the last couple of years, first of all, how difficult it has been to deliver on Brexit and how economically costly that divorce has been. But at the same time, it, it, I, it was a huge loss for the EU as well. The EU lost a part of a part of the EU that was very dynamic, a large market, a, a very um, competent uh, regulatory uh, force within the EU, but also, um, as, as you mentioned, Nick, um, an important balancing voice. So the UK did bring um, its commitments towards more market-driven way of focusing on competitiveness, sometimes pushing back on excessive regulation, keeping at the forefront the need to ensure that the economy remains dynamic and innovative, an important bridge to the rest of the world, the United States. That is a loss to the EU, and it did create then a greater opportunity for more industrial policy-driven countries like France and, and, and increasingly Germany to exercise their voice. So I do regret that that voice is there. But I do, do say, though, that maybe um, the sort of the economic policy pursued by the UK over the last couple of years have been somewhat unpredictable. So I don't know exactly whether that would have been uh, dramatically uh, different um, had the UK stayed within the EU and how that voice would have evolved within the EU policymaking. But I am absolutely unambiguous in, in concluding that uh, Brexit was a tragedy. It was a tragedy for the EU and for the UK. And, and ultimately, it leaves the EU and especially the UK worse off. On that, we can definitely agree. So let me turn now to your upcoming book, Digital Empires, which you've been kind enough to give me an advanced copy of. It's a terrific read, a brilliant examination of what you characterize as the three digital empires of the modern world. The US's market-driven model, which you believe may be fading in normative appeal and global influence. China's model, which rests on a state-driven vision for the digital economy. And the EU's rights-driven model, which you describe as being human-centric, where fundamental rights and the notion of a fair marketplace form the foundation of regulation. Now, you think the most likely outcome of this dynamic is continuing conflict and a bipolar world order between techno-democracies, the EU and the US, and techno-autocracies, China. And you characterize this as a political and ideological fight that will test the strength of liberal democracy as a model of government. The stakes, you say, could not be higher. So before asking a few questions about the book, I'd love to hear you elaborate on its themes. Uh, so thank you, Nick. And I'm particularly excited. This is the first time I get to talk about the digital empires because I just turned uh, in the, the manuscript and the book will be coming out in September. But the, the main goal of the book is really to offer clarity, some analytical frameworks to try to understand the, the present and the future of the digital economy and really highlight the key choices that are facing the governments and tech companies and, and digital citizens. And I portray the world being characterized by these two fundamental battles. So one is this horizontal battle, as you described. So the battle between the three dominant digital powers, uh, the US and China and the EU, but also this vertical battle, the battle between the governments and tech companies. And I asked whether 
one of these three models in the horizontal paddle will prevail. And then in the vertical battle, whether ultimately the tech companies will prevail or whether governments can continue to set the rules for these companies. And indeed, I, I make the argument that the American market-driven model is fading. There's increasingly a consensus that tech companies need to be regulated. We need to assert the governments more forcefully uh, uh, to shape the digital society. And that does leave us then with the US making the choice of whether it will join the EU in regulating the tech or whether it will leave China and its digital authoritarian norms to win. And the main stakes uh, this really in this in this battle um, or in the two front battle is the, the fate of the liberal democracy. And, and I argue that the, the, the destiny of, digital, of, of um, liberal democracy, it can be basically lost one of two ways. So one is when the US and the EU lose their horizontal battle to China and the Chinese digital authoritarian view of the world will become increasingly prevalent. But the second is if the US and the EU lose the fight to tech companies. I think few of us doubt that China will be unsuccessful in its efforts to rein in its tech industry. But it is still unclear whether the EU is able to convert its legislation into actual effective enforcement and actually transform and control uh, uh, the, the tech industry and whether the US can ever really legislate uh, in this field. So that's the fight that neither the US and the EU can afford to lose if ultimately what we want to preserve is the foundation of liberal democracy uh, for our digital society. So leaving China aside, you argue that the US model has largely failed and that the tremendous success of US tech companies has sown the seeds of the model's demise, exposing the downsides of what you term a freewheeling market ethos. Your sense is that many in the US are now starting to question the benefits of a market-driven regulatory model and favor more digital regulation, that the US model is increasingly a global concern, and that the era of self-regulation is over. Given your largely positive view of the EU model, is this wishful thinking on your part, or do you really think the US is likely to adopt a regulatory model similar to the EU's? So Nick, the, the conversation certainly has uh, shifted in the United States. So if you look at the public opinion surveys, the Americans no longer trust their companies. And if you look at the bills pending before Congress, the congressional debates, the statements that Democrats and Republicans agree on in Congress. But there seems to be two things that they agree on. One is that China is a problem. Second, that the big tech companies are a problem. But that doesn't mean that the United States is able to adopt the EU-style uh, regulation anytime soon. So even if the concern about tech companies is real, the congressional dysfunction may be even more real. Um, the same thing, we talked earlier about these enforcement um, actions against tech companies. I think it's still unclear whether the American judiciary will buy into this antitrust revolution and ultimately whether the people like Lena Khan will be successful in challenging the industry. So I am not certain whether the US will adopt the European regulatory model or whether the US ultimately relies on the Brussels effect in, in creating the kind of regulatory framework in the US as well that the, U, the Americans have increasingly come to support. As you know well, Anu, one of the critiques of regulation is that it stifles innovation. 
And you challenge the notion that the EU overdoes regulation and that there is an inevitable trade-off between innovation and regulation. Yet you recognize the EU has been less successful in producing tech titans. So if it's not the regulatory environment, why do you think Europe has failed to produce any tech titans? So that is, I think, one of the most interesting things to watch for for the next few years. So we already see, for instance, if you look at how Apple has adopted very strong privacy protections and it's transforming the entire market by asking users, for instance, this is something that is very painful for Facebook, when the users uh, have an easy choice of basically selecting whether they want to be tracked or not increasingly choosing not to be tracked. So the tech industry, by making choices, by building their products in ways that conform to European rules, can also uh, transform the markets outside of the, the EU. And if we look at these landmark regulations, like the Digital Markets Act and the Digital Services Act, I think one of the key questions that these tech companies need to uh, decide on in the coming months is which uh, sort of uh, regulatory choices that the changes they need to make, they adopt globally and which they will limit to Europe. The conversation about the expectations that the Europe sets for these companies in how they conduct business, that's now part of the global conversation. And there are many regulators that are willing to replicate by requesting the same kind of commitments to be implemented in their markets if the companies themselves do not already preempt those concerns by deciding to adopt some of those changes uh, across their global production. So, Annie, you've um, referred to the uh, the Digital Markets Act and the Digital Surface Act and the regulatory toolkit that have been introduced in the EU. And as you know well, there have been a series of antitrust cases that have been brought over the past uh, decade. And competition law has been viewed as a a central tool to um, address some of the issues raised by uh, the digital sector. The question I have is, uh, do you think uh, the legislation is going to be effective? And do you think in general competition enforcement is perhaps being oversold as a solution to the issues identified with respect to uh, the digital sector? And maybe in 10 years time, people will look back and and slightly regret viewing uh, competition antitrust tools as being the ones to uh, uh, to pursue here. So I, I share some of your concerns here, Nick. So first of all, the, the concern of effectiveness. The EU has been extremely ambitious and shown its ability to generate a tremendously uh, impressive regulatory agenda. So if you look at uh, what the EU has done in terms of data privacy and antitrust and now artificial intelligence, platform workers, content moderation, it really is a blueprint uh, for digital regulation very broadly. But the question is whether those regulations are effective in practice. And the GDPR, I think, has revealed very powerfully um, how hard it is to actually then implement these regulations and, and how um, uh, many privacy infringements still continue to characterize the, the digital economy. So the biggest challenge for the DMA and DSA indeed will be whether the EU can show that it can not only generate regulations, but effectively enforce those regulations and actually transform uh, the marketplace. 
I think there are a few things about DNA and DSA that make me hopeful. So one uh, criticism about the GDPR was that it was uh, disproportionately burdensome for smaller companies. If you are a big tech giant, you can afford to comply with the GDPR, but there is a distributional cost on smaller players. So DMA and even DSA, they are uh, by design asymmetrical. They impose greater obligations on the companies that allegedly create more problems and that have a greater capability to, to comply with those regulations. So they are more uh, sort of targeted, um, which I think is, is uh, an advantage and justified. But there's still a, a, it's a very different type of regulation that the commission needs to engage in. And it doesn't have the experience in doing that. So it's critical that it can uh, uh, acquire the resources and use those resources well. And also, um, I think that the, the commission will not overplay its hand so that it, it selects the cases well and uh, and it it uses those regulations effectively but selectively, and and I think that's going to be the key sort of metric of of success. And and there is Nick a temptation to to believe that antitrust is kind of a Swiss Army knife for digital economy. That it, if we just reduce the the power of these companies, where antitrust is well suited to do that, we can basically fix the most of the other problems as well. And there is some appeal to this argument, but I do worry when we try to pursue data privacy cases by using antitrust law. So we need to think about what are the particular problems where antitrust is the right tool and not weaken that tool by trying to deploy it also to the domains where it is potentially ill-suited. The same thing, but I think it sort of repeats mentioning again, if we try to harness antitrust as a tool for sort of geopolitical power and industrial policy, we can just lose a lot of value that that instrument has delivered to Europeans in, in the past years. So um, yes, antitrust can be uh, underused and overused. And I think we have examples of both. And, and it is a real test of the skill and the judgment of the commission of how it will enforce the DNA and the DSA. So I know, I know you're a keen observer of what goes on in Europe, even though you spend most of your time in the US. Uh, there's tension developing, at least potentially, between the European Commission on the one hand and some of the member states on the other, which, uh, uh, at least in some cases, uh, appear interested in uh, pursuing their own path in this area. Does that concern you? I don't think it deeply concerns me because in, in many ways, if you think about the EU's regulatory architecture, very rarely those regulations are first drafted in Brussels. They stem from the member states that are important laboratories for, for regulation. It's few regulations like the, the AI Act that is really kind of drafted uh, in Brussels without having a benefit of extensive enforcement at the member state level. So when it comes to regulations like privacy. It was first Germany and France and Sweden that had already been uh, um, experimenting with data privacy regulation before it was then adopted at the EU level. And in many ways, it's part of the messy democratic lawmaking that there are checks and balances and conflicting views across the member states that are then incorporated into EU regulation. And partially, I think the EU regulation is ultimately more balanced because it is able to overcome those member state differences and then avoid any kind of extremes 
in, in, in that sense. And that's why the EU regulation has also worked as a global template, because they have been, those regulations have been drafted in a way that they work in very different member states, 27 of them. So um, I don't think it's only a, a cost uh, to have all that contestation, but at the same time, yes, I think there are examples where the, the disagreements across the member states can undermine the coherence and effectiveness and the legitimacy of the European uh, um, common enforcement. And I think partially we know that uh, fears of that kind of fragmentation led to the DMA and parts of the DSA to be really concentrated in, in Brussels in terms of who is enforcing these regulations. And I think there's been some concerns about the GDPR, for instance, that we are burdening small agencies like the Irish Data Protection Agency, and we did not want to repeat those same mistakes when it comes to regulating the biggest tech companies with the DSA and the DMA. So a long way of saying that I think it's both an advantage of European regulation, that it stems from those divergencies, uh, divergences, but also at times, I think it is a challenge that can occasionally weaken the EU. I'm sure you'll be closely following the way in which the Commission uses uh, the new tools that it has. What will you be looking for to determine whether in your mind uh, the tools are being successfully applied and how should we be thinking of success in let's say five or ten years time? So I think that's exactly the question. I, uh, I'm i still sort of waiting for the commission to articulate what would constitute a success for them and I think it would be important for all of us for the sake of transparency to know how they set priorities and, and what is the kind of digital economy that they are trying to draft with those rules, given the way they, they can't at the same time go after every company and, and invoke every provision of the DMA and the DSA. So I think that setting the right priorities is going to be a key. But ultimately, I think we do need to see a concrete effect in terms of unlocking the persistent market power, seeing more entrants successfully challenge and compete uh, uh, in the marketplace. And that's something I think without which it would be hard to consider the DMA to be a success. If we have the same players with the same market dominance capable of engaging in similar types of practices that prompted the commission to, to invoke the DMA uh, or to um, uh, promulgate the, the DMA in the first place, then I think it would be hard to say that it is a success. Um, but yes, so I think overall, I'm I'm watching for priorities, um, that the way uh, the, the regulation is implemented, but I'm also really interested in whether the regulation will be successful in deterring the tech industry, meaning we don't need to litigate everything, but what are the provisions that the tech companies decide to really fight and challenge and where they they decide to just bring their practices into compliance and adopt a much more collaborative, cooperative approach. Because I think the tech companies under assault from many directions, and they cannot afford to fight everything. So they need to pick their battles the same way uh, the commission needs to pick its battles. And, and that priority setting on both sides is what I'm focused most. So what advice would you give the tech companies, Anu? So I think it's really interesting to see that the tech companies are approaching these battles with quite different strategies. So Microsoft tried at its time to combat its strategy, but has really changed course and embrace 
uh, uh, quite often the, the sort of the idea that the tech does need rules and decide that it does not want to fight a losing battle, but it rather wants to shape that regulation by engaging with the commission more constructively. It was also very interesting that Amazon reached a settlement, um, which is one way for it to preempt uh, um, the kind of enforcement actions that were forthcoming under the DMA. Uh, whereas at the same time, we see the recent statement of objections against Meta and a more combative tone with Meta basically not uh, 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 reaching at least up until um, now a, a, a settlement. Uh, so I, I think it is interesting for the tech companies in how they decide uh, to engage with the commission and whether more of them will, will move towards the the tone that Microsoft, for instance, has adopted with the commission, um, or whether they decide that they are going to litigate, they are trying to test the boundaries of the DNA, and they try to insist in their view that that regulation is not inevitable, even when, when the world is increasingly turning against the companies and adopting the view that regulation is inevitable. So one of the things, Anu, you, as you know, the tech companies have said is that uh, there's a trade-off between innovation and regulation. And that's a notion that your book challenges. You recognize the EU has been less successful in producing the leading tech companies to date, but argue that its choice to regulate the industry is, in your words, in the name of safeguarding individual rights and societal freedoms. And that's not where the problem lies. So this Assessment raises at least the following question. If it's not the regulatory environment, why do you think Europe has failed to produce tech titans? So I think that's a really uh, important question, Nick. And, and let me just make very clear that I don't take the view that all regulation is good. There are good regulation and bad regulations, but I am not willing to buy into the narrative that the fact that the EU has been adamant in insisting in greater privacy protections, in insisting in enforcing its antitrust laws, in calling for more content moderation, that would entail that, that, that there is an inevitable trade-off and we will see less innovation as a result. So, but it does leave us with the question, why are there no European Googles and, and Metas and Apples and Amazons? So I think there are, I would say four issues that I would focus on that Europe really needs to work on and that explain why we haven't seen the EU match the American and Chinese uh, tech innovation. So one is the lack of integrated digital single market. The European tech startups need to work in a very fragmented market and they need to internationalize much earlier than the American counterparts. That is a massive cost. The second is capital. We do still not have the deep and integrated capital markets in the EU. We are tremendously uh, um, sort of weaker than Americans uh, in that regard. And ultimately, that's what any innovative tech company needs. It does need funding, and the funding is still primarily available uh, uh, in the, the United States. And the EU has a long way uh, uh, to catch up with that. I think the tech companies can raise early funding in, in the EU, but when it comes to subsequent big funding rounds, they often need to rely on foreign capital. So in addition to digital uh, single market and the, the, the capital markets union or sort of more developed venture capital industry, I would highlight the bankruptcy laws. The bankruptcy laws are punitive 
in the EU, uh, which makes failure fatal, as opposed to just rite of passage, like in the US. So you, you try hard, you fail, and then you raise more money because you, you've shown that you are ambitious. And obviously, you cannot have groundbreaking innovations if your entrepreneurs are risk averse. And the European bankruptcy laws are making them more risk averse. And then the, the final issue that really sets Europe apart from the US is access to foreign talent. So the EU has not had an effective, um, proactive migration policy that would have allowed the EU to draw on the best brains from uh, around the world. So if you look at over $1 billion startups in the US, over half of them have an immigrant founder. If you look at the founders of the biggest tech companies, they all have immigrant founders. So Steve Jobs is a, is a son of a Syrian uh, immigrant. Um, Eduardo Saverin is Brazilian. Sergey Brin uh, is, uh, is Russian. Um, Jeff Bezos is a second generation Cuban. Elon Musk is South African. So these are just some examples of how America has not relied on just American talent, but on a global talent. And that's one of the, my sort of invitations for Europe to try to move towards a much more proactive immigration policy, because ultimately you need tech talent, you need money, you need integrated uh, uh, single market, and you need those entrepreneurs to be able to take risks in order to really be ambitious and come up with disruptive innovations. That's very interesting, Anu. So you're not concerned that the increased regulation may at some level chill innovation? So I think there can uh, be aspects of the regulations that are excessive or that are enforced in ways that does uh, chill uh, innovation. But we can also ask the question of what kind of innovation do we want? And could, for instance, tech companies developing more privacy-friendly products be considered an innovation? So privacy as such is an element uh, of, of, of welfare and innovation that we won't see these companies uh, sort of innovating uh, towards. So I think it's a simplistic way to think about that the regulation always uh, would um, sort of reduce innovation. We think about the AI regulation, the consumers have greater confidence in the new products when those products are being regulated. But, but again, Nick, I think it's absolutely fair to say that all regulation is not good. And there can be a threshold above which that the regulatory burdens simply also chill innovation. And, 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 and that's not the regulation that I am here to defend. That's a great note to end this discussion on before we move to the uh, quick fire questions. Anu, we could obviously talk for a long time. I strongly recommend your book to listeners. As I say, it's a fascinating read. And if I may say a slightly easier read than the Brussels effect, um, it's really, uh, it's really, really interestingly uh, done and has a compelling case. I'm not sure I agree with everything in it, but I very much enjoyed reading it. Um, some quick fire questions um, to end, Anu. I guess the first question um, I have is, how did you find time to write this book, given everything else you do? I wake up at 4.30, Nick. That's uh, that's probably the easiest answer to it. I also married well, and I have a terrific husband who helps take care of my three kids, which gives me more time to write. Great answer. Behind every successful scholar is a lot of support. Uh, second question. I've had the pleasure of teaching alongside you at Columbia and can attest to what a wonderful teacher you are and how much your students love you. What do you think is the essence of a good teacher? 
so I would say that one of the things that I try to do in the classroom is to show the students how difficult concept can be very easy and how some of the issues that seem very easy can actually be very complicated and they need to appreciate those complexities. But I would say that in general, in my teaching philosophy, instead of just teaching the students antitrust law or trade or EU law, I try to teach three things. I try to teach them curiosity. I try to teach them creativity and I try to teach them confidence. And I think those three things are what, what will serve them well as a lawyer, no matter sort of how they will build their careers. I've heard it said, Anu, that um, there's less interest in the United States about abroad. You've now been in the US quite a long time. Do you observe that at Columbia Law School? So Columbia is probably one of the most international places, so I don't observe that directly. And I think uh, the, today's conversation about tech regulation is one example how the Americans really understand that even if they want to build their careers in the United States and work for U.S. companies, when it comes to law governing those companies, they really need to look to Brussels. So I don't need to make the case for them. You and, uh, and uh, your clients uh, in their interactions with the EU institutions often make the case, case for me. My next quick fire question, Anu, what advice would you give someone beginning a career in antitrust law? The thing that fascinates me about antitrust law the most is just how incredibly diverse and exciting domain of practice it is, because every industry is different. And the analysis is very different when you look at different industries. And then the different aspects of antitrust law, when you do a cartel case or dominance case or merger case, or you have a vertical agreement, it is a really rich set of experiences. So when you are a young antitrust lawyer, and when I look back to my uh, short career at Cleary, what I'm most grateful for is that I got exposed to so many different types of cases. And that's, I think, what every young antitrust lawyer should attempt to do, is that you learn about different industries, you learn about different types of cases, instead of just sort of trying to be in your comfort zone, I've done merger cases before, let me do another merger case. I just loved um, the, the way that I, I was given the opportunity to do my first case of pretty much everything and, and, and walk away with just a tremendously exciting set of experiences. Thanks very much. Well, we loved having you and really missed you. Another of a question, what's your proudest achievement and your greatest regret? Oh, so I don't really think in terms of regrets, Nick. It's not that I haven't made mistakes, but I think all that is just part of uh, learning and, and, and sort of adjusting and becoming better at what you do and making different choices going forward. So I'm, I'm grateful for the victories and setbacks alike in that sense. But maybe the, the proudest achievement is that I think I've always had the confidence to define myself what an achievement is, what a good career and good life is. And I followed my own dreams and, and, and uh, my own definitions of what, what success means. And I, I've managed to build a kind of professional life in New York City, where I work alongside the most brilliant minds, incredibly hardworking and smart students. And I can wake up every day and do what I would do for free. I get to read, I get to write, I get to think, I get to play with ideas. And I just cannot think of a dream that I would have because I, I feel like I'm, I'm living that dream. Well, that's wonderful to hear. I have to say, I sometimes feel the same about what I do. And my last question, Anu, aside from waking up at 4.30 in the morning, is there one thing you can tell us about yourself that's not widely known? 
Oh, Nick, this is this is hard. I, I don't think I have any um, particularly exciting secrets, but let, let me say um, maybe why Brussels is very special for me, not because it gave me the, the topic for my book and lots of material that I, I love studying, but it's also personally very important for me. So I met my husband in, in Brussels. So he was he's an American who was passing through Brussels when I was working as an associate at Cleary. And um, and I end up marrying uh, uh, him, so I guess that is the biggest Brussels effect of my of my own life. I too had a similar Brussels effect, and um, and love the city for uh, for those and, and other reasons. It's been a really terrific hour. I thank you very much. I've enjoyed it hugely. Um, you've thrown up an awful lot of ideas, and as I say, I recommend your book uh, highly. Even if you won't agree with everything, you'll be provoked and informed. It's a brilliant read. Thank you for listening to this podcast. My name is Nick Levy and look forward to welcoming you to the next edition of the Cleary Gottlieb and Trust Review.